What's going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your other host, Daphne. And we're from Going West. A true crime podcast where we discuss various murders, disappearances, and unsolved crimes. We release new episodes every Monday, and each week we have a different case to dive into. You can find us over on Instagram at Going West Podcast. And on Twitter at Going West Pod. Listen to some of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash goingwestpodcast, where you can get exclusive bonus ad-free episodes every month. If you're looking for a new true crime binge, check out Going West. For everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird. Cheerio. True Crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. Norway reeling from twin attacks. First, a suspected car Thomas Quick was known as Sweden's worst serial killer. Quick was convicted... Kim Vile disappeared after boarding Madsen submarine in Copenhagen Harbour last August. Terrorism. Miscarriages of justice. Serial killers. Disappearances. From the known to the lesser known, we give you true crime from the dark and frozen regions of Northern Europe. This is Nordic True Crime. Subscribe to our bi-weekly episodes on iTunes, Spotify, or on your podcast provider. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Nordic True Crime. True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the True Crime Fix Podcast with Stevie B. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 9. In a missing persons case, sometimes the press can help, and sometimes it's a hindrance. In this case, definitely. The UK press had made up their mind who the criminal was and someone's life is changed forever. 
Unfortunately, this made things harder for the grieving family, as the missing person became a side story to the controversy. This is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this story is dedicated to the memory of Joanna Yeats. Joanna Claire Yeats was born on the 19th of April 1985 to David and Theresa Yeats in Hampshire, England. She was privately educated at Embley Park, which is a former 17th century stately home which was converted into a school in the 19th century and it's near the town of Romsey in Hampshire. Joanna studied for her A-levels at Peter Simmons College, which is in Winchester. Joanna then graduated with a degree in landscape architecture from Rittle College, which is in Chelmsford, Essex. She received her postgraduate diploma in landscape architecture from the University of Gloucestershire. In December 2008, Joanna met the then 25-year-old architect, Greg Reardon, at the firm Highland Edgar Driver in Winchester. The couple moved in together in 2009 and settled in Bristol when the company moved there. Joanna later changed jobs to work for the Building Design Partnership in Bristol. Joanna and Greg moved into a flat at 44 Carnegie Road in the city's Clifton suburb in October 2010. The property at 44 Carnegie Road used to belong to the nearby Clifton College who had converted it into flats for the use of teaching staff. When the college decided to sell the property in 1990, the college offered it first to its members of staff. Christopher Jeffries, head of the school's English department, bought three flats with the money that he had inherited from his mother. Mr Jeffries taught English at Clifton College from 1967 until 2001 when he retired. One flat was occupied by himself, one was occupied by Joanna and Greg, and the final one was occupied by a Dutch couple, Vincent Tabak and Tanya Mawson. On Friday the 17th of December 2010, Joanna Yeats and Greg Reardon set off for work through the snow. They had lunch together at the Hope and Anchor pub in Jacob Wells Road in the Clifton area of Bristol. Her lunch included cheesy chips and cola. Greg kissed Joanna goodbye in the lobby of their office where they both worked. Greg's plan for the weekend was to drive to Sheffield to visit his half-brother Francis and his wife Helen. Whilst there, he planned to go skiing as there was ideal weather conditions in the Peak District due to heavy snowfall in the region. The main aim of the visit, however, was to attend the christening of his two new nieces, three-month-old twins, Beth and Alice. Greg Reardon returned home after work and he loaded his things for the weekend into the car that he shared with Joanna, a Ford KA. He left the light switched on in the flat for Joanna before locking the door behind him. When he tried to leave, however, he found that he could not start the car because the battery was flat. Greg Reardon returned to the house and asked the landlord Christopher Jeffries for help starting the car, but the landlord did not have any jump leads of his own. Mr Jeffries went with Greg 
and knocked on the door of his neighbour, Vincent Tabak. Unfortunately, they had no success there, so they sought out the neighbour in the next house, engineer Peter Stanley. Mr Stanley came out and helped to get the car started, using one of Mr Jeffrey's car's batteries as a source of current. Greg Reardon had driven off to Sheffield just before 7pm. Joanna Yeats had spent the evening of the 17th of December 2010 with colleagues at the Bristol Ram pub on Park Street. She had left the pub at around 8pm to begin the 30-minute walk home. She told friends and colleagues that she was not looking forward to spending the weekend alone as it would be her first nights in the flat without Greg. She planned to spend her time that weekend baking in preparation for a party the couple would be throwing the following week and shopping for Christmas. Joanna was seen on CCTV at around 8.10pm leaving a Waitrose supermarket without purchasing anything. Upon leaving the store, Joanna phoned her best friend Rebecca Scott at 8.30pm to arrange a meeting on Christmas Eve. The last known footage of Joanna recorded her in a branch of Tesco's Express supermarket buying a pizza at around 8.40pm. Following that, it is known that she also bought two small bottles of cider at a nearby off-licence bargain booze. This is the last time that anyone sees her. Upon arriving in Sheffield, Greg had tried in vain to call Joanna on the phone line in the flat, so he texted her mobile at 10.30pm. The text said, Made it okay. Good traffic. Car wouldn't start. Had to get neighbour to start it. Okay now. Did you have a good time at the pub? There was no reply. During his weekend away, Greg tried to ring Joanna numerous times and sent her a number of text messages, but she did not respond. Greg would later say, I tried to contact her twice on Saturday, at lunchtime and again in the evening. On Sunday, I rang her in the day and on the way home. I was worried but didn't really think there was a problem. I thought she might have gone away and was busy doing fun things and was not able to get hold of her phone. At approximately 8pm on Sunday the 19th of December, Greg returned home to find Joanna was not there. Assuming that she had gone out to get something, Greg started unloading the car, but he noticed that their cat Bernard appeared to have been neglected. Greg and Joanna had made arrangements to watch the finale of the BBC reality show The Apprentice together at 9pm, and when she had still not arrived at 8.55, Greg called her again. When he did, he heard her mobile ring in the flat from a pocket in her coat. Although he thought this was strange, he still assumed that she may have gone out to get something. Greg had a quick tidy up around the flat, and when doing so, he found her purse and keys were still also in the flat. Now extremely worried, over the next three hours, Greg attempted to call Joanna's friends to find out if he could locate her, but all of these attempts were in vain. 
At 12.36am on Monday the 20th of December, Greg telephoned Joanna's parents, who lived in Ampfield, Hampshire, which is eight miles north of Southampton, and told them that Joanna was missing. They told him to contact the police and said they would drive to Clifton straight away, a journey which took them two hours. Greg Reardon telephoned the police at 12.45am. He explained that his girlfriend was missing. He explained to the operator, I have been away for the weekend and I have come back and found my girlfriend was not here when she was supposed to be. All of her important stuff is in the flat. Her keys, her wallet and her phone. I'm worried if she's missing or she might be in hospital somewhere. I'm quite worried. I've called everyone I know in the area. I said to her on Friday that I'll be back on Sunday evening. I've been trying to ring her. WPC Jackson was the first officer on the scene and took the initial missing persons report. After leaving the flat to contact local hospitals and check police reports, WPC Jackson returned with an unidentified colleague at about 4am to interview Greg. In the interim, Joanna's parents had arrived at the flat. At approximately 4.15am, the two officers with Greg Reardon knocked on the doors of the neighbouring flats to see if they could get any ideas as to Joanna's whereabouts. None of the neighbours had reported seeing her. The case was passed to detectives and they gave the search for Joanna the name Operation Braid. By Tuesday the 21st of December, the search for Joanna had been picked up by all major UK media outlets. During that day, police had also searched the area around Avon Gorge for any evidence while Joanna's parents, Teresa and David, made a television appeal for her to come home. I'm missing being able to hold her, cuddle her and just say everything's all right. And I just want her back, wherever she is. Joe, my little Joe, come back. And if anybody's got her, don't, don't keep her, give her back to us. We miss her so much. I know that's obvious and nobody can feel the pain that we feel. But we want to thank absolutely everyone who's been helping us, her school friends, her best friends, her college friends. They've just Emma and Becky and all the friends and her cousins and everything. Just want to thank everybody for what they've done. They've done posters and way beyond. And and Greg and Facebook, which we know nothing about, but all the youngsters just done what they can with what they know and just come back, Joe. On the Tuesday evening, Christopher Jeffries, who had been interviewed by detectives earlier in the day, telephoned the police to say he had remembered seeing and hearing someone who he believed to be Joanna, together with two other people at 44 Carnegie Road. On Wednesday the 22nd of December, Greg left Bristol and went to Joanna's parents' house in Ampfield. Meanwhile, specialist officers started to search the couple's flat to see if there were any clues there as to her disappearance. They also spent a second day searching the snowy Bristol Downs and the Avon Gorge. 
Police took a phone and laptop computer from Greg as part of the inquiry, although there was no indication that he was under suspicion at the time. The police wanted to ensure that the search was thorough. From Joanna's parents' home, Greg spoke of the distress of his girlfriend going missing. He told the Daily Mail, On Saturday night I came home at about 8pm after staying with my family in Sheffield, but Joe wasn't home. Over the weekend I tried calling and texting her and didn't have a reply, but Joe didn't always reply, so it wasn't completely out of character. Then, when I returned home, it was obvious that our cat had been left on his own, and he was going mad. I waited up for her until about midnight, and then when she didn't return, I started to get really worried. I went through her bag, which she had left on the table, and found it had all the stuff she would need to take with her, things like her purse and her keys. I called the police and reported her missing and also phoned her parents. Since then, I haven't slept much. I'm constantly on the internet trying to raise awareness on Facebook and some of her friends from Hampshire have even come up to Bristol to put up missing posters. She was the first ever girlfriend I moved in with. Recently, we moved into a really nice flat together in probably the best area of Bristol. It's our second place together and things felt like they were really falling into place. We were both really happy in our jobs. We worked together and that's how we met. We've had our cat Bernard for about a year since he was a kitten and he means the world to us. Things were set for us. We were going to stay with her parents for a week over Christmas and then head up to Scotland for Hogmanay. She was really looking forward to Christmas. We had put up a tree and she was due to bake some mince pies. We celebrated our second anniversary on December the 11th and I took her out for dinner. It was perfect. On the 23rd of December, Joanna's parents revealed that they feared that she'd been abducted during another press conference. Police said in the same appeal to the media, a missing pizza she had brought shortly before she disappeared could be a vital clue. The receipt for it was found inside her flat, but there was no sign of the pizza itself or its packaging. On Christmas Day at 9am, Daniel Birch and his wife Rebecca had been walking their chocolate-coloured Labrador Roxy on Longwood Lane when they made a discovery that the family had been dreading. Describing the events, Mr Birch said, I saw a lump in the snow on the left-hand verge and I thought I saw what appeared to be a pocket of a pair of denim jeans. I did not think about it straight away and carried on walking. After about 10 paces, my mind was saying, that was a body. I handed the dog to my wife, Rebecca. I remember saying to her, that was a body back there. When I walked back to the lump in the snow, I could see the form of a human body. It was laying on its side, facing the wall parallel to the road. 
He added, Although the body was almost covered in snow, there was a small section that had not been covered. I could see what appeared to be a rear pocket of a pair of jeans. Also, riding up above this, the top edge of what appeared to be white-coloured knickers, and that made me think it was female. The body was found next to a quarry and between two golf courses, three miles from Joanna's flat in Bristol. Police officers were called and commenced a fingertip search of the area around where the victim had been found. The victim's jeans were fastened, but her pink top was partially pulled up over her head. She was still wearing her bra, but her right breast was exposed. Avon and Somerset Police Forensics Coordinator Andrew Mott was among the first to be called to the scene on Christmas Day 2010. In his report, he described the snow as being undisturbed around the body and there was apparent blood staining on the wall behind the victim. He stated that he tried to prevent the body from thawing out and explained the care that was taken to minimise any disruption of potential evidence as the victim's body was lifted. Two yellow webbing straps were fed under her calves and lower back and then, using a broom handle, the body was manoeuvred to get the makeshift lifting device underneath. She was then lifted by one officer who was supported by a second behind him. Together, they placed the victim into an open white body bag on top of an orange stretcher by the roadside. From there, she was taken a couple of miles to the public mortuary at Flax Borton, where Dr Delaney began his initial post-mortem at 6pm. News that a body had been found was released straight away, but subsequently confirmed by Chief Superintendent John Stratford, but the victim's identity would not be released until Boxing Day. On Boxing Day, police said that they were satisfied that the victim was Joanna Yeats. The body's frozen condition, however, meant that the results of the post-mortem examination was going to take some time. The post-mortem was eventually conducted on the 28th of December and it was discovered that Joanna had been strangled. Post-mortem tests revealed that she had suffered 43 separate injuries, including cuts and bruises and a fractured nose. Unfortunately, it suggested that her death was slow and painful. A full-scale manhunt was now underway to find Joanna's killer. On December the 30th, a little after 7am, Christopher Jeffries heard a knock at the door of his flat and a voice saying, It's the police, Mr Jeffries. We need your help. He let them in and was immediately arrested on suspicion of murder. Apparently suspicion had fallen on him when the police were interviewing Joanna's neighbour, Vincent Tabak. Vincent Tabak had informed the police that he had seen Mr Jeffrey's Volvo change directions in the parking bay between the time he had gone to bed on the 17th of December and the morning of the 18th of December 
indicating that the landlord had gone out. Vincent Tabak and Tanya Mawson had also reported to the police that they had seen Mr Jeffries spying through windows and letting himself in with his own keys to apartment one where Joanna and Greg lived. He was questioned for three days and then released on police bail, an indication that he remained under suspicion. This is where Christopher Jeffries' trial by media began. He was not perceived well by the British media due to his appearance and old-school demeanour. The tabloid press portrayed him as a sexually perverted voyeur who used teaching as a means of feeding his perversions. In an article in the Financial Times by Brian Cathcart on October the 8th, 2011, the behaviour of the British media during the time of his arrest was summarised. So as not to misquote, I will read you the passage of the article in full. I quote, Several of the newspapers on Thursday morning who had their stories written before his arrest, but reaching their readers after it, painted him in an unmistakably sinister light. The Daily Mail, for example, had a front-page photo beside the headline, Could this man hold the key to Joanna's murder? Since, as her landlord, Jeffries naturally had a set of keys to the basement flat she shared with her boyfriend, Greg Reardon. The hint was a heavy one. It was not until Friday when the press really let rip. The front page of The Sun showed a small photograph of Joanna Yeats next to a cutout from a school lineup showing Jeffries 30 years ago with very blue hair and grinning. The headline was The Strange Mr. Jeffries, Kid's Nickname for Ex Teacher Suspect. Page 4 took things much further. It was dominated by four words, each accompanied by an explanatory phrase, thus. Weird. Strange talk, strange walk. Posh. Loved culture, poetry. Lewd. Made sexual remarks. Creepy. Loner with blue rinse hair. The report began. Joanna Yeats' murder suspect, Chris Jeffries, was last night branded a creepy oddball by ex-pupils, a teaching colleague and neighbours. It went on to assert that he had a ferocious temper and threw things in the classroom and that he had invited pupils to his home and habitually made sexual remarks. He was also unkempt and dirty, a loner, domineering and generally believed to be a homosexual. The evidence for this came largely from unnamed sources, although a former teaching colleague, Richard Bland, was quoted using the word loner and referring to his blue-tinged hair. Bland also said that Christopher Jeffries was a dedicated and successful teacher, though this was not given prominence. The Daily Mirror had its own line. 
Joe Suspect is Peeping Tom. Beside that, there were three more lines. Arrest landlord spied on flat couple. Friend in jail for paedophile crimes. And cops now probe 36-year-old murder. Just a quick side note. During the interview with Jeffries, his solicitor had been informed that the police were investigating links to a Bristol cold case which had a similar MO to the murder of Joanna. On the inside pages, Jeffries was a nutty professor with a bizarre past who was arrogant, rude and a snob, had a ferocious temper and peered through his tenants' windows. The paper also reported that his eccentric manner and long-term bachelor status sparked unfounded school gossip that he was gay. The other papers had their own variations. The Mail, the teacher they call Mr Strange, reported that Jeffries idolised Christina Rossetti, who was described as a mentally ill romantic poet who often wrote about death and was prone to apocalyptic visions. The Daily Star announced Joe Landlord, a creep who freaked out schoolgirls, and Angry Weirdo had foul temper. The Daily Express quoted an unnamed former pupil saying he constantly made lewd remarks to students. All allowed generous space for photographs, many serving to reveal the contrast between the youthful pretty murder victim and the wide-eyed, windswept suspect. The mirror blew up one picture to show that Jeffries had an A to Z of Bristol in his car, adding the caption, Evidence. Maps were found on the back seat. It would have been very difficult, seeing this coverage, to avoid the conclusion, or at least the strong suspicion, that Christopher Jeffries had killed Joanna Yeats. He was or so it was suggested, volatile, morbid, sexually repressed and unfettered by social norms. Furthermore, he knew his tenants' movements and had access to Joanna Yeats's flat. This hostile evidence was founded almost entirely on unnamed witnesses with some of the most contentious quotations reproduced in several papers. A careful reader who relied on only quotes from people who were identified by name would have probably seen a different picture. A former tenant, Wendy Nichols. A friend, Oliver Cullen. His former headmaster at Clifton College, Stuart Andrews. A neighbour, Ray Lohman. And even the former teacher who spoke of Jeffries as the loner, Richard Bland. They all described in various papers, though usually towards the end of articles, a man who was a dedicated teacher, a responsible landlord and an active member of his community. Several expressed amazement at his arrest or downright disbelief at the idea of him killing anyone. Put these together with some readily available facts and it would have been possible to flip the picture entirely. This man had taught for 34 years in a well-known local independent school, Clifton College, leaving without even a blemish on his record. 
He was involved in the Neighbourhood Watch, the Liberal Democrat Party and a number of conservation campaigns. He had a large circle of friends, owned a handful of properties and was studying for a degree in French at the University of the West of England. As Lohman put it, he was a pillar of the society. But the editors did not give prominence to that interpretation. After seeing the papers that Friday, a solicitor wrote to several editors warning them in strong terms to stop publishing defamatory material. On the same day, the Attorney General Dominic Grieve publicly reminded editors that the Contempt of Court Act forbids the publication of any material related to an arrested person that is likely to prejudice a future jury against them. Yet the next day's coverage was again extremely hostile to Christopher Jeffries. The Saturday Sun, for example, led with the front page with the headlines Obsessed by Death and Joe Suspect Scared Kids. The substance of this revelation was that he had shown some students the 1955 Alain René Holocaust documentary Night and Fog and that he had taught students the Victorian murder novel The Moonstone. Inside was an interview with an unnamed blonde woman who alleged that Jeffries had approached her several times in Bristol and that when she rebuffed him he responded with a question used as the headline. What, do you think I'm a pervert? In a short article alongside, two named former tenants of Jeffries were quoted as saying that he had let himself into their flat, though they did not suggest that there was anything sinister about this. The Mirror meanwhile asked, was Killer waiting in Joe's flat? And kept its focus on landlord and keyholder Jeffries, who was, again, a nutty professor, a show-off, dirty and eccentric. The male had a tale about him leaving his dying mother's bedside, while the Daily Star recycled the Rossetti angle and declared that Jeffries had been known to pupils as wizard. That Saturday evening, however, after three days and two nights in custody, Jeffries was released and at the same time Joanna Yeats's partner, Greg Reardon, issued a statement, a personal tribute to the murdered woman. It also included the following forthright passage. Joe's life was cut short tragically, but the finger-pointing and character assassination by social and news media of as-yet-innocent men have been shameful. It has made me lose a lot of faith in the morality of the British press and those that spend their time fixed to the internet in this modern age. I hope in the future they will show a more sensitive and impartial view to those involved in such heartbreaking events and especially in the lead up to potentially high profile court cases. With these events the steam went out of the Jeffries story, although there was still just enough left to justify the Sunday Mirror pointing out that he had taught pupils Oscar Wilde's The Ballad of Reading Jail 
which it described as a story of a man hanged for cutting his wife's throat. While the Mail on Sunday noted that he had shown them the Deborah Kerr film The Innocence, a spooky tale by 1961 standards, though today rated suitable for 12-year-olds. By the 3rd of January 2011 though, after being lambasted for the weekend, there was little interest in the retired teacher. Subsequently, Christopher Jeffries said that my identity has been violated, my privacy has been intruded upon, my whole life. I don't think it would be too strong a word to say that a kind of rape had taken place. End quote. It is fair to consider Mr Jeffrey's reputation was collateral damage to the tabloids selling their newspapers. Regrettably, that was something which was commonplace with the regulations which were in place at the time. On Monday the 3rd of January 2011, the police appealed for information about a light-coloured 4x4 vehicle which had been seen near the area where Joanna's body had been found. Detective Chief Inspector Phil Jones reported there was no indication from the post-mortem that she had been sexually assaulted. He added that he was unable to speculate as to whether she had let somebody into her flat, whether somebody was already there, or whether somebody broke in. On Tuesday the 4th of January, the police launched a campaign on Facebook to find Joanna's killer. An advert on the social networking site allowed people with information to contact the incident room directly instead of calling in. On Wednesday the 5th of January, detectives released another clue to the public. Detectives investigating the murder of Joe Yates in Bristol say she was missing one long grey sock when her body was found on Christmas Day. The police stated they were keeping an open mind about whether she was strangled with it or whether it was being kept as a trophy by her killer or killers. The same day, the police banned ITV journalists from a press conference at which the latest appeal was being made. Avon and Somerset Police said that they had made a complaint to the broadcast regulator Ofcom about the naive, unfair and irresponsible ITV news reports criticising the investigation into Joanna's death. ITV News said it stood by its story and the force later overturned the press conference ban but warned it would adopt similar tactics if the media hampered its investigation. On Tuesday the 18th of January, the final steps of Joanna were reconstructed for the BBC Crime Watch programme in a bid to find her killer. I will try and find this so that I can post it on our Facebook page in time for the episode's release. Avon and Somerset Police said tests concluded that she had not eaten the pizza that she had brought from Tesco's Express store on the 17th of December. Two days after the Crime Watch appeal was filmed, the police got their breakthrough. The police had become increasingly suspicious 
as to why Vincent Tabak had fed them misleading information about Christopher Jeffries. If you recall earlier, Tabak had told the police that on the night of Joanna's disappearance, Jeffries' car had been moved. This turned out to be a lie, but the information had prompted Jeffries' arrest. On the 20th of January 2011, 32-year-old Tabak was himself arrested in his native Netherlands and returned to the United Kingdom. During his initial interview, he refused to cooperate with the police and largely answered questions with no comment. However, the evidence against him was mounting. He couldn't argue with the DNA proof that linked him to Joanna's death. As this wasn't revealed publicly until the trial, I will explain about this later. Three days later, he was charged with her murder. On the 24th of January, Vincent Tabak appeared before Bristol Magistrates Court. During the three-minute hearing, Tabak spoke only to confirm his name and date of birth. No plea was entered and he was remanded in custody. On the 25th of January, Tabak appeared before Bristol Crown Court. His lawyers declined to make a bail application. On the 31st of January, Tabak appeared before Bristol Crown Court again via a video link, this time from Her Majesty's Prison at Long Larton in Worcestershire. Again, no application for bail was made and he was remanded to appear at the same court on the 4th of May. It emerged that Joanna's body was released to her family by the coroner on the 28th of January 2011. They would finally be able to lay her to rest. The funeral of Joanna Yeats took place at St Mark's Church in Ampfield on the 11th of February 2011. Joanna's body was carried into the church in a wicker coffin in front of her parents, her brother Chris, Greg and 300 other people made up of friends, police and work colleagues. The coffin was adorned with daffodils, small sunflowers and assorted other spring flowers as it entered the church with Reverend Peter Jilks giving the service. After the 30-minute service, she was then buried in the grounds, a simple cross marking her grave. So what was known about the accused perpetrator? Vincent Tabak was born in Verkel on the 10th of February 1978 youngest child of Sonia and Gerald. He was brought up in the nearby small town of Uden near Eindhoven in the Netherlands. He had three sisters and a brother. At the age of 18, Vincent Tabak began studying at the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at Eindhoven University of Technology and he graduated in 2003 with a Master of Science degree. He left university in the summer of 2007. Even before his doctoral thesis was completed, 
he was headhunted in September 2007 to work at the Bath headquarters of the global architectural consultant firm Burul Hapolt, where he worked as a people flow analyst, examining how people moved around offices, hospitals, schools, airports and sports stadiums. He met his girlfriend Tanya Mawson in 2008 through the Guardian's dating site Soulmates. They moved in together in the large ground floor flat at 44 Carnegie Road in June 2009. While he was at work on Friday the 17th of December 2010, Vincent Tabak was modelling the movement of pilgrims in and around the Great Mosque in Mecca. His girlfriend Tanya Mawson went off with her colleagues after work to a Christmas party for Dyson staff where she worked and left her car at home. She would be there until around midnight. After his day at work, Vincent Tabak left his office in Bath at 6.15pm. He then caught the train to Bristol Temple Meads, where he arrived at 6.40pm. He cycled home to 44 Carnegie Road for an evening in on his own but it did not turn out that way. The murder trial began on Monday the 10th of October 2011 in Court 1 at Bristol Crown Court. The hearing was presided over by the judge, Justice Field. The jury consisted of six men and six women. The killing happened after Joanna made a flirty comment to back claimed at his trial. We were standing close to each other. She invited me in for drinks. She made a flirty comment. I thought she was being flirtatious, he said. But when he went to kiss her, she screamed and Tabak claimed he held his hand over her mouth and around her neck in an attempt to silence her. The prosecution claimed that Joanna would have been in pain and resisted him but Tabak denied this was the case and told the court that there was no struggle. He also denied that he had become sexually aroused as he attempted to kiss her, but did admit that he was attracted to her that night. When he was asked to show Joanna's beckoning motion, Tabak made a waving motion which looked like an innocent hello gesture. The court also heard that in a final laissez-faire act, Tabak ate the pizza the police had been looking for on the night that he killed Joanna. The one that she had purchased at Tesco's the night she had gone missing. After he had murdered Joanna, Tabak texted his girlfriend Tanya Mawson to say that he was bored and he drove to a nearby Asda supermarket to buy crisps and beer whilst Joanna's body was in the boot of his car. He then left the body on the verge of Longwood Lane, three miles from Carnegie Road, where she was found on Christmas Day. The bloodstains that were found on the wall close to where Joanna's body was discovered suggested Tabak had tried to lift her over the wall into the quarry. Having failed to do that, Tabak covered the body with leaves.
I stated earlier that there was DNA evidence. Traces of DNA matching to backs were found on Joanna's breast and on her jeans underneath her knees indicating that he had probably held her by the legs as he carried her body. Traces of Joanna's blood were discovered in the boot of Tabak's car, the court heard. Fibres found on Joanna's body indicated she had come into contact with Tabak's black coat and the silver Renault Megane that belonged to Tanya. Nineteen days after his arrest, while in prison, Tabak told a chaplain, I've got something to tell you. It will shock you. He confessed that he had killed Joanna and said he was sorry. The jury found Tabak guilty by a majority decision of 10 to 2 after three days of deliberation. Vincent Tabak was sentenced to life in prison. The judge ordered that he must spend at least 20 years in prison. This means that the earliest that he would be eligible for release is 2031. Mr Justice Field said to Back, who was flanked by six security guards in the dock, was guilty of an evil and wicked act and is a very dangerous individual. The jury did not hear during the trial that when police delved into Tabak's computers after his arrest, they discovered an interest in hardcore pornography, some of which featured strangulation and bondage. Evidence recovered from his hard drive showed that he had accessed a portal to a pornographic site on the day that he had killed Joanna. Following the killing, he sometimes navigated between reports about her disappearance and pornography. Police were particularly interested in an image on one of his computers showing a slight blonde woman resembling Joanna with her pink top pulled up. Police analysts also found that during business trips to back researched escort agencies. Whilst in Los Angeles shortly before the attack on Joanna, police believe he may have twice used the services of a sex worker, once after checking into a hotel under a false name. The judge, Mr Justice Field, however, ruled that the value of the evidence in explaining why Tabak acted as he did could not outweigh the prejudice it would cause his defence. But... After Tabak had appeared in the witness box and portrayed himself as a loving man devoted to his girlfriend Tanya, the prosecution again argued that the jury had the right to be told about the evidence relating to the escort girls. The judge disagreed and the jury did not hear the evidence at the trial. After the verdict, the judge told Tabak, In my view, you are very dangerous. In my opinion, you are thoroughly deceitful, dishonest, manipulative. When you entered her flat on the evening of the 17th of December last year, you did not even know her name and had had virtually nothing to do with her. You proceeded to strangle her 
intending, in my judgment, to kill her. A dreadful, evil act committed against a vulnerable, unsuspecting young woman in her own home. That wicked act ended the life of a young woman who was entitled to expect a life of happiness and fulfilment. Joanna's parents were not in court to hear the verdict, but her boyfriend Greg Reardon stared at Tabak, visibly shaken and close to tears as he was led from the dock. A statement from her parents was read out by the police outside court. The words I'm about to, uh, about to read out to you are words that have been written by David and Teresa Yates. They're representative of their thoughts and their feelings as they've gone through this whole process that's ended up today. We attended the trial of Joe's murderer, not to see justice handed out to him, but to find out as much as we could about what really happened from the time when Joe disappeared to when Joe's murderer was arrested. We never considered this trial as a process of justice for Joe. The last four weeks have been more stressful and intense than we ever imagined. Although we'd been made aware of the nature of much of the evidence against Joe's killer, some of the details which came out were a surprise. There was never any doubt in our mind that Joe had been murdered and that we fully expected him to lie when he went into the witness box. We came here with little hope or expectation of hearing what happened on the 17th of December, but needed to see him and to hear what he had to say firsthand. We saw no emotion or remorse or regret for what he did to Joe. We felt that all emotion expressed by him were false. All we heard were words of self-pity. For us, it is with regret that capital punishment is not a possible option for his sentence. The best we can hope for him is that he spends the rest of his life incarcerated where his, li his life is a living hell, being the recipient of all evils, deprivations and degradations that th his situation can provide. For ourselves, this trial has had little effect on our lives. We have still lost our daughter and our son has lost a sister. Our main sorrow is that Jo was not allowed to start her own family, have children and achieve her potential. We will never get over our loss how she was murdered and the total lack of respect with which her body was treated. We so miss hearing her happy voice and seeing her living life to full. Ever since Joe was first reported missing, we have received many, many cards and letters, mostly from people we have never met, giving us support and well wishes. We thank all of those people for their thoughts and for the time and trouble that they've taken to actually get in contact with us. It has touched us to the core the physical tributes that have been made to remember Joe, from Joe's university friends, a tree at Rickle College where Joe obtained her degree, from the Landscapes Institute at Hilliers and Hilliers Gardens, uh, an area in the Hilliers Gardens near to our home dedicated to Joe, from BDP where she was working at the time of her death, a number of tributes including an annual award in her name at the University of Gloucester and from HED a flowering cherry tree. Thank you all for your thoughts. On Friday the 29th of July 2011, eight national newspapers were forced to make a public apology to Christopher Jeffries for the libelous allegations made against him following the murder of Joanna Yeats. The Sun, The Daily Mirror, 
The Sunday Mirror Daily Record Daily Mail Daily Star The Scotsman and the Daily Express also agreed to pay him substantial liable damages thought to be around six figures. As for David and Teresa, in 2016 they revealed that they had found it too painful to lay a headstone for their daughter, instead deciding to keep the initial cross in the churchyard at St Mark's in Ampfield. A memorial garden was planted where Joanna had previously worked to celebrate her memory. Joanna was designing a garden for the new Southmead Hospital when she was murdered and a memorial to Joanna was opened in the garden in May 2012. After giving one interview in 2011, there's no further information on Greg. I personally though wish that he has found some sort of closure and that he is able to live out the rest of his life how I am sure Joanna would have wished him to. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at True Crime Fix Pod, or look out for our Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast. I'll be posting information about the week's case on there. Also, there is a closed Facebook group, True Crime Fix Discussion, where we talk about episodes and generally have a bit more fun on there. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. That's True Crime Fix on Instagram. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's True Crime Fix Podcast at gmail.com. Please also remember, if you have any questions for me, please use the same email address as I plan to do a question and answer episode after the final episode of this season, episode 12. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everybody.